So for several years now, my family has tried to take a week and go to Whistler, British Columbia. It's become one of our favorite places on the entire planet. Um, Over the years, Whistler has gone through lots of cosmetic changes since I started going there in the mid-90s. But the things I love about Whistler are pretty much the same. It's the air and the mountains, the streams and the open spaces, the wildlife you're bound to see. I remember one summer, this bear was like down in our condominium area. I love the fact that I can go exhaust myself by playing outside hard all day, soccer with my kids, riding bikes, swimming. And I love the fact that I can also enjoy a good book under a tree uh, while they're swimming and, and I'm not. I keep going back to Whistler because it's one of those places that I'm sure if I lived there it would grow old, <laughs> but it's good for my soul to visit. And though my experience changes, the mountains are still the same. The road is much better now, but it still takes the same, still the same distance to get there. The place is the place. It's just unchanging. But I come back, not because the place changes, but because I change. My kids change every year. My marriage changes every year. My relationship with God is at a different place every year. And so I go back to a familiar place like a familiar friend in a way to enjoy it anew for the first time. In life, it seems like things are always changing. And for the most part, they are. We grow older every year. You just can't help it. Micah just turned three. We all heard that, right? The people around us are always changing. Politicians come and go, and so do pastors, and so do teachers, and so do doctors, and businesses change hands, and friends change. And in this relentlessly changing world, it's nice to have a few anchor points that don't change. And that's one reason I find the church calendar with its rhythms and cycles and fasts and feasts helpful to me. Every year, we walk through the scriptures and the stories and the high days and the, and the fasts as well, not because there's nothing new to say or because there's not anything new to do, but because the story remains relevant and fresh through all the seasons of our lives. Last week, we celebrated Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the Christian calendar. And today, of course, we're going to start it all over again. We reset the clock. Today, we're going to start at the beginning. We may be coming to texts in the Bible that are familiar to us, but we've changed since the last time we were here. We've either grown or some of us maybe have gone backward. That's just the facts. But we're all a year older and a year removed from the story. Our world has changed. We have a, a different political landscape. We have new realities in the world. And whether you think things are better or worse, I can say with absolute confidence, things are not yet right. That the kingdom of God has not come in its fullness yet. That shalom has not yet covered the earth. And we still have lots to hope for. Today we begin our Advent series in the Gospel of Luke. Luke's Gospel is about salvation, his rescue of broken people and a broken world. And we're going to start right at the beginning. Would you stand with me as we read the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. 
Insomuch as I have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah from the division of Abiha, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now, it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to go enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people who were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias, he was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Lord, thank you for this good word. Thank you for this good news. Holy Spirit, would you help us as we enter in this text? For many, this is so familiar. This is in every children's Bible we've ever read. This is... Uh, um, Almost every Advent season, we read this text. Protect us from over-familiarity. Speak to us afresh today. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, as with any good story, at least in my opinion, it's really important to get the setting. Throughout this message, I'm going to be focusing on three settings. The historical setting the biblical setting, and the personal setting for the main characters in the story. The story takes place in Israel around 6 or 7 BC during the reign of King Herod. Herod, by the way, was given his rule by Mark Antony in about 40 BC, and he ruled in Judea and the surrounding area until about 4 BC. At this point in history, Israel was ruled and occupied by the Roman Empire, and the Romans put Herod in charge of Judea in Israel as kind of a puppet king. They knew that Herod would do what they wanted to, uh, them to do. So the Israelites, in general, were morally defeated. They couldn't stand Herod or the Roman Empire. And they were socially oppressed. That's the historical setting. 
That's the when and the what of the situation in this text. Now, let's turn to the biblical setting. The why and the so what of the setting. Most of Israel believed that their political oppression under the Roman Empire was a punishment, a result of their sin and rebellion. Just as they had been sent into exile into Babylon uh, for the rebellion many centuries before, uh, many Israelites interpreted their current situation as a kind of house arrest, like an exile in their own land. Instead of going somewhere like Babylon, instead they were stuck at home but under foreign rule. By this time, this time of the story, it had been nearly 400 years since a prophet of God received a word of God and wrote it down and spoke it to, to Israel. And so they clung to the promises of prophets like Isaiah and Daniel and Zechariah and Malachi, the prophets who ministered to the people while they were exiles in Babylon. And just like the Babylonian exiles, the Israelites under Roman rule looked forward to a day when God would do what? When he would send someone, his anointed one, literally his anointed one. In, in Hebrew, that word is Messiah, and in Greek, that word is Christ. Christ and Messiah, same meaning. It means anointed one, the rescuer from God. And this anointed one was supposed to bring salvation by doing some very important work. He would turn the people's hearts back to the word of God so that as a nation, they would be faithful to God. And it was expected that this Messiah, this Christ, this anointed one, would defeat Israel's enemies on Israel's behalf. And it's also interesting that it's not talked about too much, but in Isaiah the prophet, uh, the prophecy extends beyond Israel. And it points to a time that this Messiah or anointed one would also be a savior to the nations, to the non-Israelites, to anyone who would put their trust in God. That's the biblical setting. The personal setting of the story involves a husband and a wife. Luke tells us that Zechariah was a priest from the line of Abiha, that's his family name, and that Elizabeth also came from a priestly line. In fact, she came directly from the line of Aaron, the very first Levi, Moses' brother. That's Elizabeth's family line. And during this time in the life of Israel, there were roughly 18,000 priests all scattered throughout Israel and Judea. The priesthood was divided of those 18,000 into 24 divisions. So if you're a military person, maybe just think 24 divisions of priests. Normally, the priests would serve in their local communities, just kind of like I serve in the lettered streets, right? And uh, only additionally, uh, these, these priests in their local towns would also be kind of city elders, and uh, they would offer advice and counsel and all kinds of things in their communities. But for two weeks a year, each division would leave their little hometowns, and they would travel to Jerusalem, and for two weeks of a shift, they would serve in the temple. Our story takes place during one of the weeks when the division of Abiha was serving at the temple in Jerusalem, and that included, of course, our friend Zechariah. While Zechariah and Elizabeth were a faithful couple, and they both had priestly pedigree, they also knew deep pain. On a national level, they knew the pain of holding out hope, beyond hope, beyond hope. Here they were, 
from a priestly line, offering prayers to God, standing in the gap between the people in the village and leading them in their prayers, all the while knowing we're under Roman rule and it seems like God is very far away. And on a personal level, Zechariah and Elizabeth had a hole in their heart because they couldn't have children. In fact, not only were they currently barren, but because they were elderly, they were beyond hope. They couldn't have children ever in the eyes of, at least in any rational human thinking. And it meant that they were always going to be childless. And maybe you can identify with Elizabeth and Zechariah. Maybe for you, life seems barren, even though you've been trying to be faithful, trying to do the right things. Maybe it just feels like you continually hit detours and dead ends in your life, whether through literal, literal barrenness or through relationships that don't work or health issues that keep coming up or in your relationship with God. To some degree, I think we all struggle with barrenness. We can't create life. Uh, some of us can create biological life through reproductive systems that work correctly, but that does not mean that we can create joyful, abundant, God-infused life. So if you come here this evening feeling a bit barren, either barren in your own life or feeling like our society is barren and not going in a good and healthy direction, then I have very good news for you. So far, I have described the setting of this story on three levels, historical, biblical, and personal. But of course, there's more to the story. In fact, these three, these three settings, the historical, biblical, and personal, all anticipate something much greater. Let's pause for a minute and just talk about what anticipation means. If you look it up in the dictionary, there's several different definitions. One type of anticipation is like a game I used to play with, with Sophia when she was two-ish. Sorry, hon, I'm, it's not a bad story. Um, but she used to love it when I would chase her around the house and tickle her and, uh, you know, just giddy, glee, giggling all over the place. Uh, but after I catch her a couple times, I wouldn't even have to touch her, right? You, you all know this if you've got little kids or if you're just super ticklish. Like, I just get close and stick my fingers out, which I know sounds creepy now that I'm saying it, but, but you just kind of get close and then, like, you know, just like the anticipation that I might actually tickle her was just enough. That's one type of anticipation, just that the tenseness, feeling like something's going to happen. Another might be uh, when Richard Sherman uh, anticipates what the quarterback is going to do and he uh, jumps around and gets an interception. Now, where was he today? Uh, we need a little bit of that going on today. So in that sense, anticipation can mean kind of seeing something before it happens, right? But there's a third aspect of anticipation I want to talk about in terms of the text. And uh, sometimes we, we say um, something like, uh, the calm before the storm, right? The calm comes before the storm. And so we might also say the calm anticipates the storm. Or we might say something like, uh, uh, night falls before the dawn. And when night falls, if everything works correctly and the sun, you know, the earth keeps spinning and all that, we know that when the night falls, that the dawn is coming, that we could say then that the night anticipates the dawn. When we see the night happen, we know that the dawn is going to come. 
We've heard a surface description of Luke 1, 1 through 17. The historical setting, the biblical setting, the personal setting. Now, let's revisit those settings through the lens of anticipation. The socio-political one, the historical setting is pretty easy. Israel was ripe for revolution. The oppression of the Roman Empire, the excessive taxes, the religious regulations, and the violent and blasphemous policies of King Herod caused anger and fear and frustration. The scene anticipates revelation. You you, you could look at all the French revolutions, you could look at the American Revolution. Anytime this kind of setting happens, it kind of tips our minds to something's going to change. It's anticipating a revolution. Uh, If we were maybe to transpose our current political climate onto Israel back then, we might say that it was ripe for candidates. And on the left, maybe um, they would have candidates that would try and work within the system of power so they could make life more manageable, at least for the elite. That would be kind of the Sadducees. That's what they tried to do. Uh, With those who uh, wanted the far right, maybe their slogan would be, Make Israel Great Again. And both of these approaches would ultimately fail. The Sadducees we saw did not last, and the zealots who tried to to rise up and take power back, they were crushed. Those solutions don't last, ultimately. But let's take a look at the biblical, biblical setting. What does this story anticipate? Are there previous stories in the Bible that anticipate this story? Could this story be the beginning of a fulfillment of an older promise? For example, can you think of another couple in the Bible who were unable to have children, who were past their childbearing age. Anyone think of a couple like that? Abraham and Sarah. And why did God open the womb of Sarah? He's loving and gracious, yes, but he also was fulfilling a promise. He told Abraham and Sarah that he was going to make their family more abundant than the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore, so that those people would be bearers of the promise and the good news of God. And so by opening the womb of Sarah well well past her childbearing age, it was undoubted that this is a move of God and that he's doing it to fulfill a promise. So you're a Jew living under the oppression of the Roman Empire, and if you heard the story about God doing something in your day the way he had done to Abraham and Sarah... Well, you might just think that a pregnancy like this one would anticipate something or someone greater. And you might just think that God was being faithful to his promise to rescue and redeem. You might just get super excited, not just that your wife Elizabeth was going to have a baby, but that this might mean something a whole lot more. It's pretty cool, right? And we're just getting started. There's, more, there's lots more. In fact, I can't even say it all today, but I'm going to control myself. Okay. In this passage, Zechariah is serving at the temple with hundreds of his colleagues, and uh, the labors were all divided up amongst these priests. Remember, each division of the priesthood would serve for two weeks in Jerusalem. That's it, just two weeks. And there's thousands, you know, hundreds of these colleagues working together, and they would do all kinds of things like clean the grounds and uh, wash the temple and, and lead prayers and songs outside the temple. But one of those jobs was offering incense inside the Holy of Holies inside the temple. And some priests went their whole career and never got to do that. It was so unique. And the way that they decided who got to do it was that they would cast lots, which is kind of like sacred dice. (laughs) And in Greek thought, 
lots were used to take human will out of a decision um, that needed to be made. It helped make a process non-partial. But in Hebrew thought, there was an added element, and that's what we're talking about in this passage. In the right setting, like a priestly setting, lots were used to determine the will of God. So, when Zechariah gets chosen to offer incense in the holy place of the temple, it was more than just chance or good luck. It was seen as the will of God that that particular man go to serve incense inside the Holy of Holies on that particular day. And what happened when Zechariah was saying his prayers in the temple? Well, he had a visit from an angel. In fact, later on in the story, we learn it was the angel Gabriel. Now, Rack your brains here. I'm going to give you a hint. It's in the prophets. Can anyone else think of a time when Israel was oppressed by a foreign power and a Jewish leader was praying and the angel Gabriel came and visited that leader while he was praying and had good news for Israel? Anyone think of a person like that? I'll give you a hint. He was also in a lion's den. Daniel. Yes. Specifically, if you want to look this up later on, in Daniel chapters 9 and 10, he gets two visits from the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel came to Daniel and said in so many words that God had heard his prayer for deliverance and that he was about to act and to deliver. Now, if you're a faithful Israelite like Zechariah and you knew your Bible really well, and if you were praying and crying out to the Lord for deliverance from a national enemy, and if Gabriel appeared to you with good news about a son who would go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord... Well, you might just think that the power of God was breaking into the world at that point in time. And you might just think that this event was anticipated by Daniel's experience. And you might just think that this encounter was going to anticipate something even greater. You might get really excited. And rightfully so. Uh, Gary and Anne read for, uh, from the prophet Malachi earlier. And in that prophet Malachi, who was the last of the prophets to write nearly 400 years before this story we're talking about, And one of the things that Malachi writes about is a promise that one day God himself would come and visit the earth. One day he would come and dwell with his people, and one day he would come to judge and to rescue. But before that great and terrible day of the Lord, one like Elijah, the prophet, would come and prepare the way. And this one would go as a forerunner before God and prepare people's hearts, calling them to repentance. And what Gabriel is saying in that holy place with Zechariah, who was chosen by Lot to go inside, is that all of these promises, anticipated by the past prophets, are about ready to come true in time. All the waiting, all the longing of the ages are coming to pass What this means is that God is faithful, that he's remembered his promises. And fun fact, Zacharias in Hebrew means Yahweh has remembered. And John, John the Baptist, his son, means that God is gracious. That's what those names mean. It's just kind of fun side notes. And that is, in part, what we are preparing to celebrate at Christmas. That is what we are putting our hope in deliverance 
we need to be reminded of this kind of thing, that God is putting, he's, he's got plans to put the world right. We might have the best country in the world, give or take some ideas, but it's not perfect, is it? It's not even close. We might have a good economy, and unemployment might be decent, but it's not shalom. And we might have technology at our fingertips that can help us win trivia games and all this kind of stuff, but it hasn't solved world hunger yet or murder You guys, we have a serious problem. We have lots to hope for in the coming of the kingdom. And as a church, we need to be thankful during Christmas that that the Lord has come and he's broken the back of death itself on the cross, but he's coming again and will make all things good and right. And, And I need that reminder and that helps me to wake up in the morning and to go to work and to be Uh, an agent for good in the world, and that's why I constantly preach that to you as well, because what you do matters, because God is going to redeem it all, all the good things. But I gotta tell you something else. Even though the story anticipates a cosmic deliverance, a deliverance of all people and our whole planet, and that's good, you know, there's a time and place when I kind of just need a little reminder that God's gonna deliver me too. and he's going to deliver you too. Sometimes when your heart is broken and when your life is headed in the wrong direction and when you encounter like real deep personal struggles, sometimes you need to know that the good news is for you too, like your name and your situation and your family. We've been looking at Luke 1, 1 through 17 through the lens of anticipation and that this text fulfills so many prophecies. Many of the anticipations of the Old Testament are coming to fruition in the coming of John and then Jesus. But there's another detail that I think anticipates good news for you and me as individuals as well. Let's revisit the text. We're told that Elizabeth and Zechariah are righteous and they have no children and that they are now so old that they can't have children. It's basically their situation is impossible biologically. And I imagine that they probably prayed for a child for years and years, but at some point, either out of resignation or the dawning of old age, they must have come to grips with the fact that children weren't going to be part of their story. And while it is possible to be happy without something that you've longed for your whole life, it's also safe to say that they're living daily with a little death. The death of a dream, the death of an idea, the death of part of their life that they wanted to participate in very badly. So Zechariah is chosen to go into the temple. And just by going into the temple, he's experiencing something, as I said before, that many priests would never experience in their whole career. But it gets even better for him Gabriel, one of God's angels, appears to him, and he's gripped by fear, which is pretty much what happens when every sane person encounters an angel. They're not like at the Christian bookstore, like chubby little cherubs, okay? This is a a holy warrior of God. And Gabriel has words for Zechariah, not just for Israel, not just for all humanity. First of all, he has a word of comfort for this man directly. 
Do not be afraid. And second, he has a word of good news. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your petition has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will give this son the name John. This isn't code or metaphors for, oh, your wife, which represents all of Israel, will bear a son and it will be a new human race. This is a man and a wife and a boy that's about ready to enter into their family. Your petition has been heard. What petition? What do you think Zechariah was praying for? He probably wasn't in the Holy of Holies praying for a son. In fact, because we have ancient Jewish liturgies, we do know at least what he was praying for. I can't say exactly what he was praying for because I'm not Zacharias, but we do know that the liturgy of the, the prayer of the incense was that he would be praying for God to have mercy on Israel, that he was praying for God to rescue Israel, that he was praying for God to fulfill the promises he made to the prophets and promises of his coming to live among his people and promises of the Holy Spirit coming. But what's interesting, and I think what really shows the loving heart of God, is that Zechariah and Elizabeth probably did used to pray for a child back in the day, back when they were young enough enough to really hope for one. And what Gabriel is telling them is that God has heard both your petitions. He's heard the cry of your heart, both on a spiritual level and a national level and a religious level and on a personal level. And God is choosing to meet Zechariah's greatest personal desire with the world's greatest need at the same time. And when you start looking back at the stories in the Bible, you see that's how he always works. God just doesn't drop solutions out of heaven. He works in and through people. He works in and through you. God doesn't promise to give us everything we want. He does not promise to give you a child even. He doesn't promise us comfort or safety, at least not on this side of the kingdom. But what he does promise, and this is what's anticipated in the text, he does promise that he's heard our deepest cries and he's taken the initiative to do something about them. He's heard the cry of every one of us who feels stuck in our bondage to sin those who continue to hurt ourselves or others because of our slavery to our ways of thinking and to our forms of behavior, maybe to substance abuse. He hears the cries of every individual who's longing for new life. He hears the cries of those of us who are longing for the ability to experience joy in any circumstance. That is a gift. And this Advent season, we begin with great anticipation. God has set our salvation in motion with the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. He's the forerunner of Jesus. And the best part of all of this is that he's already come. Like we're telling an old story. We're talking about the anticipation of John, but Jesus has come. It's 2016. And for some of you, this season, this moment may be the time that you come to receive Jesus, whom God sent to rescue you. This might be the moment for you. 
And maybe for others, and as I look out, maybe most of you, you've been here before, you've visited this story before, and I pray that the hero of the story, Jesus himself, would visit you and I afresh. That he would continue to meet us in the broken places of our hearts that are anticipating new life. And I pray that today could be the day for us, that we could take a step closer with him. Would you pray with me? Living God, thank you for the good news in this text. And I thank you that the good news doesn't live in this text. <laughs> thank you that this word points us to Jesus, points us to the good news, points us to the initiative you've already taken to rescue us. Thank you that you've provided a way out. You provided a way for us to experience new life. Lord, for those who are experiencing new life, would you encourage and stoke those fires of new life? May joy well up inside and effectiveness in living for your kingdom in this world. Lord, for others who have not yet receive this good news as a, uh, as a game changer, as a life changer. I pray, Lord, for the ability to repent of sin. And I pray for that joy of, of feeling the guilt and the shame slough off of, a sho- of shoulders and for the tension in the pit of stomachs to be released. Lord, and for your spirit to take residence in hearts. And Lord, for those who have repeated this circle back to Advent, Christmas, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, who have been living in ordinary time for a long time, growing complacent, slipping back into harmful habits, and our own little rebellions, God, would you open up fresh possibilities? Would you quicken our vision to see and imagine yet again what life can be like, even now, in your kingdom? Help us, Lord, to surrender to you and to experience the freedom of new life again. Amen.